0: Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 139 for the second half of August 2016. The topic I'm going to talk about today is some more of the pseudoscience that has been propagated on the internet about the New Horizons spacecraft and the science that has come out of its mission to the Pluto-Sharon system. This is part two of a two-parter, where the first episode focused on some more of the basic things like the naming process, data downlink plan, craters, and Young Earth creationist claims. This part two is more of a hodgepodge of different claims loosely connected by the overall theme of anomaly hunting. Before we get into them, I do need to give a small disclaimer yet again. I do work on the mission, on the science and the planning sides. Nothing that I'll be talking about is secret or embargoed, and I make no representations about me talking as though uh, this is for the team, this is all of my own opinion, and it's based on the information that I lay out in this episode. This means I don't represent my employer, I don't represent NASA, I don't represent the science team, I don't represent Alan Stern, I don't represent anybody but myself, and I'm doing this all on my own, unpaid time, etc., etc., etc. With that out of the way, I haven't done an episode in a while that truly focused on anomaly hunting, so for newcomers, I want to define it for you in a way that makes the most sense to me. Anomaly hunting is where you search for anything that doesn't make sense to you and then you use that to claim whatever you want based on it not making sense and therefore the official explanation must be wrong as i said in a recent interview which should be posted soon to the conspiracy skeptic podcast pretty much everything that i'll be talking about in this episode really does not even rely on new horizons or pluto at all Rather, the people making the claim tend to simply use New Horizons as a jumping-off point to claim the conspiracy they were going to claim in the first place. In this episode, the very, very rough outline is that I'm first going to talk about some of Richard Hoagland's technological claims as an example, and then some image analysis claims and some other tidbits. As I mentioned in the last episode, Richard Hoagland now has his own two-hour radio program on weeknights, And as such, there is a wealth of material for this podcast and my blog. I focus on some of his claims, not in particular because of a dislike for him or need to pick on him, but because he focuses on the field of science that I do, and he's prolific in this area, so I think that I would be remiss if I didn't mention his ideas. And some people think that any publicity is good publicity. I don't know if Richard does in particular, but there's that. So first off, one of Richard's main positions that I didn't talk about in the last episode over the years is that there's a public space program and there's a secret space program. He's less of a major advocate of the alleged secret space program than some people like Carrie Cassidy or even Mike Barra, but he still thinks that there's a secret group that knows everything that he claims is real is real and that they have a much better technology than anything that's public. To wit, on July 4th, 2015, okay, now you know that I wrote this out ahead of time. Nobody says to wit in casual conversation. Anyway, on July 4th, 2015, there was what, for some reason, we still call a spacecraft anomaly on New Horizons that caused its main computer to shut down. The craft went into safe mode, and the backup computer did exactly what it was programmed to do, which was to gather all the telemetry it could, find Earth, and try to get in contact with us. The sequencers and missions operations group met immediately, and they actually had a good idea of what might have went wrong. They had planned for so much that might go wrong, but there were still a very, very few, very low probability things that were still on the board that they hadn't practiced for. The telemetry showed that it was one of those things, and they wrote a new sequence, I did my part for it while I was literally flying there on July 5th, and the spacecraft was fine. We lost some observations that were for lower-priority science questions that I mentioned in the last episode. Nothing from there was top priority. As an example of one of the observations we lost was the family portrait image, so-called because it was the last time the craft would be able to image all of the objects in the system from the sunlit side in one shot. It turned out that the issue was a timing one. The computer is not only technology from when the spacecraft was built over a decade ago, but it's even more primitive, because with NASA, you have to select something that has a known, successful track record in space as opposed to, say, the latest and greatest Mac Pro or something like that. It's slow, but it does what it needs to do. But because it's slow, because it's at least a decade old, if not a decade and a half or two decades old, It takes a lot of time to do stuff, like compress images and other data, and the sequencers didn't quite take into account how long was needed for all of the images that it had just taken to compress. Not only that, it was also trying to burn the core sequence, what it was going to do from 10 days before through 10 days after closest approach, into memory, all while also sending and receiving stuff to and from Earth. In my experience, The latest version of iTunes still crashes if I'm trying to import a CD, sync with both my iPad, my iPod Touch, oh, and my iPod Nano. Also download the latest podcast episodes of, say, Cognitive Dissonance and the Reality Check, and listen to music at the same time. iTunes just says, sorry, can't do this, bye. Imagine a computer built over a decade ago, trying to do all of this stuff flawlessly for, well, a decade. To me, it's impressive that safe mode doesn't occur more often on spacecraft in general, let alone New Horizons. But as I said, we recovered, and that's that. Or perhaps not. According to Richard Hoagland, this was the secret space program crashing the spacecraft's computer as a message to Alan Stern, who's the principal investigator of the mission. He thinks, he is in Richard, thinks that it was a warning to NASA and Alan to not show what's really there, or at least what Richard thinks is really there on Pluto. Keep in mind, this was 10 days before the closest approach, before Richard saw stuff that he claims are giant buildings and other things that I'll get to in maybe 10 or 15 minutes. But besides the buildings and other things, which, as I said, I'll talk about in a little bit, Richard also made another claim. He thinks that Pluto itself is either really young or really artificial, in which case it's also really young. Why? Because going into this, many people, many scientists, predicted that we would find more moons or rings because of the dynamics of that area of the solar system and likely impactors and ability for material to escape or not to escape the system and various other things. Because there were predictions about this, then Richard said that we must find rings or moons if the system is natural. Because we haven't found any moons or rings, then Pluto and Charon must be made of some material that does not produce rings or moons, and therefore they're artificial. Or they're both incredibly young, in which case they're still artificial, built very recently by some intelligent civilization. To debunk this, it's as simple as saying that in science, a prediction does not always come true. To say that a prediction must be true, or insert bizarre conspiracy idea, is completely misunderstanding and or misrepresenting how science actually works. But Richard thinks that it still harbors the ruins of an ancient civilization, which, as I said, I'll talk about more when I get to the image anomalies portion. A final point before I move on to image-based claims is more conspiracy when something doesn't go 100% according to plan. On the morning of July 14, 2015, U.S. time in the morning, which was during the spacecraft's time of closest approach, NASA's website crashed. Since I had to be at work at 4.45 a.m. that morning, I was listening to Richard's live radio program at the time. I heard his guest, Keith Laney, state... Of course, I have no proof of this. He then proceeded to get into conspiracy. He was shocked an hour earlier at the incredible details being revealed in the publicly released images from that morning. About ten minutes before Keith Laney stated his no-proof comment, we had a NASA guy come into our geology and geophysics investigation room and tell us that we were so popular that we had crashed NASA's website. For us, that was a yay moment because it meant that, hey, the public is taking an interest in what we do. However, it was pretty much instantly that I also realized that the conspiracy folks would spin this into something. Which is exactly what Keith did. He said that NASA was releasing such good stuff and such revealing images of Pluto, despite them being lossy JPEGs of lossy JPEGs, that their website was shut down by those in control. This, of course, completely ignores the fact that NASA's websites are available as cached versions on a lot of other websites, including Google, which was not taken down. Also, the image in question had been shared literally hundreds of thousands of times by that point on Instagram, which also hadn't been taken down, and also likely millions of times on other sites, including news websites, Twitter, Facebook, and those other new social media things like MySpace. This is an example of a conspiracy claim for which he really did have no proof or no evidence. He was just sort of spouting whatever conspiracy came to mind, and it makes no sense if you know anything about how the internet works. Moving on to image-based claims, I've talked extensively on this show, not this particular episode, but the show in general, about how incredibly arduous proper image analysis is, and how when you do this kind of thing for a living, like me, staring at spacecraft images, you tend to build up a mental library about what all the different kinds of image quirks look like so you don't misinterpret them as a real feature. One of those big ones is cosmic rays, another one is compression artifacts, and so on and so forth. One of those that we really don't deal with too often these days, but unfortunately still do for some kinds of images, is what I just said, compression artifacts. Going into this encounter, we really didn't know how bad they were going to be, or how good they were going to be. In particular, the images on the craft can be saved at a 6 to 1 lossy compression ratio, meaning that they take up 6 times less space than the original image, but because information has been removed, some areas are going to look weird, and that weirdness is going to be based on exactly what kind of compression algorithm is used. In this case, that's JPEG, and I should also mention before I get into this, the images are saved both as compressed but lossless in a 2-to-1 ratio, and then lossy-compressed in a 6-to-1 ratio. Right now, we've been dealing with all of the 6-to-1 stuff. Eventually, we're going to get the 2-to-1. So moving on, JPEG tends to have two primary characteristics. One of them is that areas of low contrast are smoothed over. If you have, say, for example, little folds in a white wedding dress, those folds are going to go away under severely lossy compressed images. A white wedding dress right next to a black tux is going to be preserved because that's high contrast. That's why I mentioned last time that some of us have referred to terrain that we're seeing as resurfaced by JPEG, because it's smooth, but we don't know if it's really smooth or if that's the compression algorithm. That's why areas of Sputnik Planum look really smooth, but we can still see borders of what look like convection cells, and we can see the high-contrast Norgay Montes rising up next to them. JPEG is also blocky, that's the second characteristic. My sort of layman's understanding of it is that it looks at the data in blocks of pixels before deciding how to deal with the pixels in those individual blocks. In this case, that's 8 pixels by 8 pixels. If the data in that block is low contrast, then the JPEG compression algorithm pretty much says, no, there's really not much variation here. I'm going to just wipe everything out, and I'm going to take the average brightness of those 8x8, 8 8, which is 64 pixels, and say that that entire block is that brightness. And that's it. The same thing happens for the block next to it, and the block next to that, and the block next to that. Now, if one of those blocks happens to have a high contrast feature in it, say um, if the sun is off to the left and there's a crater rim, so you have a highlight and a shadow, then the JPEG compression algorithm is going to try to preserve most of the information in that 8x8 pixel block. So what you end up with is a blocky image that has different toned 8x8 pixel blocks interspersed among 8x8 pixel blocks that look like they have some high contrast features. How well this really is going to turn out is really dependent on the amount of light, or the original brightness of the original image. If we have a relatively bright body, like Pluto, which reflects up to about 25% the light it receives, in contrast, Earth reflects on average about one-third, then we are pleasantly surprised with how the images come out. If we have a relatively faint body, like Charon, which reflects maybe half as much, so it's more like Earth's moon, then the JPEG compression makes the image look a lot worse, much more blocky. That's all from the spacecraft and how the science team gets them. NASA's press office makes their own JPEGs, applying their own compression algorithm to already compressed data. And there might have been an intermediary where the science team did a mock-up of the, uh, say, image to be released. So they have a lossy compressed JPEG, which they lossy compressed JPEG, and then sent to NASA, which was lossy compressed JPEG. So we have at least two or three levels of JPEG compression in there. Then, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. also apply their own heavier compression to the images once they're on those servers. So really, anything that you see, or anything that the conspiracists see, is going to have at least two levels of different compression applied, possibly up to four or more, And all of the artifacts propagate through, and because everyone's sort of doing their own little resizing and cropping and rotating, then those blockinesses are going to be at different levels and different numbers of pixels across on the final image. I sort of gave you that long introduction because, looking at my notes, five out of the ten claims that I want to at least mention on this episode are based on not understanding blockiness and compression artifacts. So let's start with Australian, who I talked or wrote a lot about in the Part 4 of the blog post series about this. You might want to read that one because I'm only going to go into one of his several claims here. Well, actually three. This came to my attention because it was sent in by Warwick, The person who YouTubes under the moniker Art Alien TV thinks that there are huge cities on Pluto. And surprise, it's not Richard Hoagland. You know it's high production value when he's showing a YouTube movie of one of his previous YouTube movies that he's showing you in his browser on his computer along with all the menu bars and ratings and other things. That aside, the entire crux of the gentleman's argument is that he sees a blockiness in the released images.
1: You can see the pixels if I zoom right in. That's as far as I can zoom in. You can see the individual pixels here. Now, of course, they run in parallel to each other. With the edges of the picture, so they run left to right and up, up and down. So these structures don't run in, in parallel with those pixels at all, these are completely diagonal to it, so and they're running roughly at 45 degrees here. So there's nothing to do with pixelation, and that can be demonstrated quite simply by zooming in. You can actually see the individual pixels here, and it, it, these structures are going the other way. So I cannot see how that can pop. No one's actually accused me of uh, this being pixelation yet, but I'm sure someone will. Uh, Some, some spook will probably, you know, some guy from MI6 will probably come on here and (laughs) who knows, (laughs) or someone from NASA will probably try and debunk it, but we'll see.
0: Based on the last five to 10 minutes of explaining JPEG blockiness and that these images are compressed at least twice, you probably have an idea of what I, who's been called by at least one very, very obnoxious person, a paid shill for NASA, would say. It's JPEG blocks. But, gasp, how could I possibly explain that the blocks are tilted, almost 45 degrees and not parallel to the image edges? Could he have me cornered, so to speak? No. It's really, really, really simple. Rotate. The spacecraft will be at some arbitrary roll angle relative to the planet based on lots of other things. A decision was made early in June that all publicly released images should have Pluto's north pole up. Pluto's north pole is actually rotated over 110 degrees relative to the plane of the ecliptic. So it's a really simple thing of just rotating. That's that's all. We rotated the images, so the original JPEG 8x8 blocks are rotated. It's not that hard to figure out, and yet we see the same kind of claims elsewhere. For example, the fiducials or the crosshairs for the Apollo photographs from the moon, well, people point to those as not being centered or not being parallel to the image edges. Rotate and crop. But he has a comeback to say that they can't even possibly be JPEG artifacts at all. Throughout the original YouTube movie that he shows in a YouTube movie, he has a caption stating, this is not pixelation or JPEG artifacts. This is a TIFF image. He also states,
1: this is taken from a TIFF image, as it says here, and TIFF images do not break up in the same way as JPEGs do. They will eventually break up if you really crank them too hard. Uh but they don't break up that easily. JPEGs are already compressed and resized and stuff, and already have kind of squ- square blocks in them. but these square, the square blocks
0: you get in in JPEG images are not don't go across diagonally. Could he have me backed into another corner?: No. Images were released not only through NASA via press release, but they were also released on the NASA Photojournal website, which is meant for more advanced hobbyists as well as other scientists, and so the captions are much longer and more detailed. NASA Photojournal has an odd quirk to it. They provide every image as JPEG and TIFF. Regardless of what you send them, meaning that if you send them a ridiculously compressed, tiny, tiny JPEG, they will post a JPEG, but they will also convert it to a TIFF and post that. Apparently, Art Alien TV never looked at the Save As option in the PaintShop Pro software he's using, but it's a good example, however trite, of how it's easy to make a conspiratorial claim based on something that may sound like it makes sense when you initially say it. It's just that when you do any tiny amount of examination, it all falls apart. The next claim is made both by this person and by Richard Hoagland. I'll let the first guy say it first. Suddenly,
1: I noticed all these huge rectangular structures here, and they go right across this area. Here's that crater I was initially homing in on. I was looking at this crater thinking it might be something interesting. It may well turn out to be something interesting. But it turns out that just above it, are a huge cluster of buildings it looks like a city um but the thing is this is a very very i mean it's a a small planet but these are enormous buildings if they if they are buildings
0: and now for
1: richard hoagland in a bit longer clip as i looked at this architecture comparing
2: it to all the other images of architecture i've analyzed across the solar system for the last 30 some years as Various missions fanned out and we got better and better pictures and we got different space agencies and there's the Chinese and the Japanese and the Russians and now the Indians have gone to Mars and we've got the Chinese going to the moon. We've obviously had Apollo. There is a consistency in the mega architecture and it's all about the same scale and it's huge and it strongly implies that the folks who built this stuff were huge. There were giants in the earth in those days, men of renown. Does that does that ring a bell? It rings quite a bell. Yeah. yeah. So, so we go to the outermost planet of the classical solar system, the one in the highly inclined seventeen degree orbit, which means it's not down in I love Keith's phrase here. It's up in what you call what, clear air meaning it's not being bombarded by debris in the inner solar system as it goes or or as as it does not live in the plane of the rest of the planets, which means that the erosion is much, 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 much less than anybody has expected, uh, both in the mainstream community and, and even among some amateur astronomers, but not to us.
0: Before I address the giants, I want to address Richard Hoagland's last statement, I don't know if Richard really believes what he says at this point, but it doesn't matter. The statement itself is another example of an incredibly arrogant statement, where he and his close-knit group thinks that they know something obvious that no scientist has thought of, like Pluto is above the plane of the solar system and below the plane of the solar system, so it should be impacted by stuff less than stuff that's in the plane of the solar system. He's wrong. As I said last time when talking about the cratering on Pluto, this is one of those basic things that's taken into account in our models of what the crater population on Pluto should look like based on the impactor population. These are directly integrated orbits taking into account all of Pluto's orbital weirdnesses. It's incredibly arrogant to think that he's the only one who thought of this. Just like it's incredibly arrogant in the last episode for him to think that the reason that he thought to ask why there was no live signal from the spacecraft as it went through its closest approach was because he has more experience than any of the literally over 500 journalists who were there at the time. Now again, I don't know if Richard actually believes what he says, but at the very least it's an arrogant statement, if not an arrogant thought. So okay, now that that's out of my system, this is one of those things that's been sort of in the back of my mind as something to talk about for a while, and it extends to most anomalies that people find in images. They always just so happen to be on the size of a few pixels across, at least in their basic structure. It doesn't matter if it's these kinds of flyby missions where you have pixels on the scale of hundreds of meters to kilometers on a side, or even when we have orbiters that can image things just tens of centimeters on a side. The anomalies are always on the scale of a few pixels in their fundamental features. And when I say fundamental features, I mean, for example, not necessarily the quote unquote buildings themselves but, for example, the uh, girders or whatever structures would make up those buildings are always just a few pixels across. That's why most of the stuff that these people see is gigantic, because the pixels are large, so the structures have to be huge. In Richard's case, he was talking about images with pixels 400 meters to about 2.2 kilometers across. That's an individual pixel meaning that he was looking at what he said were buildings that, by definition, must have been many kilometers across. The same is true for the Australian, at least that's the accent that I think he had, uh, who was looking at images with 3.1 kilometers per pixel. So his buildings that happened to be in units of 8 pixels, well, that's darn convenient, isn't it? Or at least 24.8 kilometers across also. When you see what you consider to be buildings that just so happen to scale with your image resolution, perhaps that says more about how you are interpreting the images than anything else. But this brings me to another piece that I've wanted to address for a long time, and it's a claim that is not unique to Richard, but is very, very often cited by Richard. Geometry means an intelligence constructed it. He used this to claim, well, pretty much everything in the solar system is either artificially constructed, like Mars-Moon Phobos or the asteroid Steins, or that it has buildings or ruins upon it. Let's start looking at this claim as Richard makes it, for on its surface, it seems like it might make sense, just like a couple of the others I've addressed in this episode. Richard, whenever he brings it up, does not claim credit for it. Rather, he says that it comes from Carl Sagan argument from authority, that when some of the first satellite photos of Earth were returned, Carl searched and searched and searched for any signs of intelligent life. The only thing that he could find was a dark logging road in Canada in contrast against white snow. That was long and linear. Hence came the maxim, intelligence will reveal itself on a planetary surface by creating geometry. Now, I've paraphrased it slightly. Unfortunately, I don't have the audio in front of me, so I can't state it exactly. But really, that's the claim. If you see regular repeating geometry, it requires life. Now again, on its surface, this makes sense. People certainly make geometric patterns. It's easier, for example, to drive a straight road, and we like to make square or angular buildings. We see nice geometric patterns in the plant and animal kingdom also, including seemingly complex patterns like spirals in the Fibonacci sequence, which turns out to be an optimal pattern for leaves to get sunlight. And you also see it, for example, in the seeds of a sunflower or the shells of the nautilus. Life certainly can, and often does, create geometric patterns. But so does non-life. The Grand Canyon is an excellent example of a fractal, which is an incredibly complex geometric shape characterized by self-repeating patterns at all scales. No matter how much you zoom in, well, at least up to a certain point for real features, but no matter how much you zoom in theoretically, you get the same kind of structure visible. A good example of this, of course, that's well known, is the Mandelbrot series. The Grand Canyon shows a nice fractal pattern, just like clouds, snowflakes, mountains, river deltas, and waterfalls also. Valleys have a characteristic size given the environment, creating patterns of undulating waves. Sand dunes also have a characteristic wavelength and often have a secondary wavelength on top of them, and these create undulating, regular patterns. Individual mountains have nice, regular geometric shapes within a fractal pattern mentioned above, and so on and so forth. In my particular field of study, we can look at impact craters. These are typically circles, or ellipses. On Mars, there is a certain kind of crater that produces ejecta that looks like the petals on a flower with nice, broad, sinuous, regular perimeters. We also get craters forming all in a row, either from the impact or breaking up of a string of objects, or ejected material from the crater itself can produce those. We can also see very regular V-shaped ridges between these secondary craters, the ones formed from the ejecta, and these form from overlapping ejecta curtains during formation. There's also the famous meteor crater in Arizona, which is practically a square. This was made by pre-existing faults that controlled the shape of the crater as it was formed, and we also see these elsewhere as well. In fact, I was just in Arizona for a conference, and you see plenty of flat-topped mesas with sharp angular edges that form a drop-off to a cliff controlled by veins of material with slightly different strengths. These are all very, very regular geometries. You do not need life to create geometry. It's also a very nebulous term when Richard uses it. Geometry, well, what does he mean? Pretty much anything that he sees that he thinks is artificial, it would seem. In fact, this kind of claim is so common in many fields of pseudoscience that it has a basic logical fallacy to describe it. The single-cause fallacy. From its name and the discussion so far, you can probably guess what it is, but I'll elaborate. It basically goes as, this item A can be caused by thing B. I observe item A. Therefore, thing B was the cause. Or, as Unicorn Daniel stated on my blog, X implies Y. Y is true. Therefore, X. His example was, if it's ice, it's cold. Liquid oxygen is cold. Therefore, liquid oxygen is ice. In all of these cases, you reach the wrong conclusion because you skip the fact that that initial premise that X implies Y or item A can be caused by thing B, well, that's not necessarily the only cause or the only example. In this particular case, Richard and other people observe something that they think that they've classified into this nebulous and ill-defined term, geometry. And because life can give rise to geometric patterns, they conclude that life made this geometry. As opposed to a natural process that we see not only here at home on Earth, with myriad examples, but all over the solar system as well. This is as opposed to, in some cases that he and others have claimed, what really could be an intelligent cause computer compression artifacts, and or electronic noise—think uh, speaker static, for example—in the camera detector. My bet for some of the stuff shown across the internet is in that last category. My bet for the rest of it, especially stuff that Richard has claimed he sees on Pluto and Charon, is in that first category. It's simple, basic, geologic, or other natural processes that can create regular geometric patterns. While Richard is fond of quoting Carl Sagan when it helps him, he needs to remember other things that Carl said. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Pictures of features that could very easily be described by known, does not require intelligence to explain them phenomena, do not qualify as that extraordinary evidence. Which might sound like my normal kind of poetic transition to a wrap-up, but there is one more thing as Steve Jobs was often fond of saying before revealing the next neat product. I would be remiss in talking about, on this episode of New Horizons-related conspiracies, well, if I didn't actually talk about this particular person's claims, even if I really don't want to give him much more time. So, if you've heard of him, it's probably from the Lunar Wave stuff, which I did actually briefly address on a clip show episode of the podcast. He thinks that the moon is a hologram. Um, He put this out there years ago, and it made him famous on several conspiracy shows, including The Higher Side Chats, which also runs on Art Bell's radio network, which might be why he's been picked up by other conspiracy show hosts. Uh, His moniker is Crow777, where Crow is spelled with two R's. His claim that I'll address in this episode really boils down to this. Because he can get from Earth what he thinks are better images of Jupiter and Jupiter's moon than what NASA was showing of Pluto from New Horizons several days before encounter, well, New Horizons is fake. He's wrong. First off, in his first video, he is fully focused on saying that Jupiter in his camera and telescope is better than Pluto from the LORI instrument on New Horizons. In his second video, he commits the logical fallacy of moving the goalpost, and he claims that what he was really talking about was Jupiter's moons, not Jupiter itself. But everything in the first video is about Jupiter, really, so I'm not sure what he's trying to pull. So let's do some really, really basic math. I haven't talked math on this podcast in a long time. Let's break out the mental calculators. Jupiter was near the opposite side of the Sun as Earth was in mid-July of 2015, meaning that it was about 900 million kilometers from us. Pluto, very roughly 5 billion kilometers from us, or roughly five and a half times farther. Jupiter's radius, about 71,000 kilometers on average. Pluto's radius, about 1,190 kilometers. So Jupiter is about 60 times bigger in size. Take 60 times smaller and and 5.5 times farther from Earth, Pluto's gonna be about 330 times smaller than Jupiter, at least seen from Earth. But what about New Horizons? The first images that he complains about and said were a quote insult to your intelligence were from late May of 2015 when New Horizons was about 50 million kilometers from Pluto or about 18 times closer than we were to Jupiter. Except he wasn't showing you LORI images. He was showing you MVIC images which when, at that point in time we had about two pixels across for Pluto because MVIC has a much worse pixel scale. They sacrificed closeness for color. It's the second animation he shows, about 3 minutes 45 seconds into the video, which is from Lori from April, when New Horizons was over twice as far away, about 110 million kilometers from Pluto, or about 9 times closer than we are to Jupiter. So simple math. Jupiter is 60 times bigger, New Horizons was 9 times closer, so Jupiter would still if the optics and the detector were all the same, be about six and a half times bigger than what he's doing in his backyard. Except, the optics are not the same. I don't know the field of view of his specific telescope. Uh, The build of the telescope will change the field of view, as does camera size. LORI itself has a field of view of about 0.3 degrees, or about 60% the size of Earth's full moon. It also has a 1,024 by 1,024 pixel detector, or 1 megapixel. Crow looks like he was using a DSLR camera, which typically has 16 to 20 megapixels. That means that his resolving power, the ability to see a certain number of pixels across a feature, is going to be about 4 to 5 times that of LORI, because you take the square root of the number of pixels, which is the area, to get the length. So... You have Jupiter 60 times bigger. New Horizons is nine times closer to Pluto. So already, Jupiter from Earth is going to be six and a half times bigger than New Horizons Pluto was going to see it. Or Pluto as New Horizons is going to see it. Add to that, you're going to get four to five times more pixels across. And, well, Jupiter should be about 30 times more pixels across than how New Horizons was seeing Pluto. Really, that's it. It's it's really quite basic, simple math, simple optics, simple geometry. Uh, everything else that he says that I talk about in my part 10 blog post in the series is really just fluff around that basic claim and a basic lack of understanding about how imaging works and how distance and size of the bodies factors in. And he might seem particularly fringe to you, yet he has a lot of support among the paranormal crowd, and Newsweek keeps publishing practically weekly the same news story that talks uh, about his youtube movie along with some other weird claims about new horizons and pluto his movie has gotten around 100,000 views at this point and so even while he might seem kind of fringe he's getting publicity and yet he uses the same kind of basic lack of understanding as others do in the field just like Richard Hoagland, Keith Laney, Mike Barra, and so many others where they fail to understand how to properly read image data and account for what the camera really saw versus what you see on your computer screen. And that, I think, is a reasonably poetic way to get into the wrap-up. As a reminder, this is an episode where I've talked about a lot of these issues in my currently 11-part blog series about Pluto conspiracies, so if you want to read more on these, just see the show notes where they're all linked up. This is the last of my two-part series on New Horizons Pluto Encounter Conspiracies, although there's still another potentially hour-long roundtable discussion that I did with six other early career scientists. We recorded it at the beginning of July before the encounter, but while it's, you know, it's kind of taken a while to edit due to a lot of outtakes and a lot of noise-level changes because we were sort of all gathered around a rectangular table and the microphone wasn't ideal. So conspiracy-wise for New Horizons, at least based on the encounter with Pluto, we're done, at least as far as this podcast is concerned. And I think that what I said near the beginning of the episode still holds true. Many of the conspiratorial ideas raised that I looked at and talked about here were going to be raised regardless of if we were going to Pluto or if we were going to your backyard. The context doesn't matter. It's just a jumping-off point, a starting position, from which they can talk about the conspiracy they already had in their minds. While New Horizons' data is teaching scientists new and exciting things about a world that we've never been to and a place in the solar system that we've never explored with its capability— The phrase, there's nothing new under the sun, can be used to describe the conspiracies that various people have invented to go along with the vast area of new scientific exploration. This is coming out a week after the last episode, but still behind its publication date by 11 days, and it's already longer than normal, so I'm skipping the other segments. I do, however, want to thank everyone who's taken the time to rate this podcast on iTunes. Sometime in the last month, it passed the 100 ratings mark, although we're still only at 71 reviews in the US store. Unfortunately, iTunes is still incredibly annoying in that you can't see all of your ratings and reviews in all stores at once. I did check Canada, which has 25 ratings and 14 reviews, but the most recent is 13 months old. The UK store has 13 ratings and 12 reviews. Most recent, and the only one this year, is by The Moog Zero, so thank you to that person. Nothing in the last year from Australia, but thank you for the 11 ratings and 8 reviews. And there are no ratings, but there are 3 reviews from New Zealand. So, I also want to thank uh, Jersey City Frankie, Rugby is Good... Uh, FG It U, Alien Mojo, B-Legosi, and Phoenix X Rec for their USA reviews since April. There is still quite a ways to go before I get up to the Skeptics Guide to the Universe level, which has over three thousand ratings and fifteen hundred reviews, and that's just in the US store. There aren't any ratings or reviews yet on Stitcher, but in July this was the one thousand five hundred sixtieth rated podcast on that site out of more than 14,000. I know that because that was my first week's uh, score or rating. So yay for that. That wraps up this topic for the 139th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. And sorry for the delay. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, you can use the form on the, or the feedback form on the podcast's website, or you can send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can tweet me at pseudoastro. That's P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback and, um, as usual, behind on feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. As I mentioned earlier, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast website or service of choice. Also, tell people about it. That's the only way that we can spread.